this is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. EMDocs has a lot of great content on heart failure. It has posts on evaluation, management. It even has discussions on the disposition of heart failure, which is no easy thing to consider. There are several misconceptions when it comes to heart failure, and we're going to do a three-part series of podcasts on some of these misconceptions. First, a little bit of introduction on heart failure. This is a very common syndrome that we treat in the emergency department. It accounts for about 650,000 ED visits every year in the United States, and over 80% of patients with acute heart failure are first evaluated in the emergency department. Our first podcast will look at some misconceptions in the evaluation of heart failure patients. The second will look at management. And finally, the third will look at disposition. Let's get to our first misconception when it comes to evaluating the patient with heart failure. Our first one is natriuretic peptide testing is routinely helpful in diagnosing patients with heart failure. There are several types of natriuretic peptides that we can test for. The first one is a B-type natriuretic peptide, and the second one is NT-proBNP. These molecules are cardiac neurohormones produced in the cardiac musculature due to myocyte stretch, which can occur in acute heart failure. They increase sodium and water excretion, increase peripheral vasodilation, and decrease activity of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. ProBNP is the first molecule. This is the molecule that's released with myocyte stretch. It's cleaved to NT-proBNP and BNP. NT-proBNP's half-life is three to six times that of BNPs. 5% of BNP is excreted by the kidneys, but NT-proBNP is almost solely excreted via the renal system. Both are affected in renal failure, but NT-proBNP much more so. Now, there are a lot of recommended cutoffs for use in patients with heart failure, but there's nothing definitive. So what do the guidelines tell us when it comes to using BNP? ASAP has a level B recommendation saying that a BNP level of less than 100 picograms per milliliter or an NT-proBNP level less than 300 suggests that heart failure is not likely. A BNP level over 500 or an NT-proBNP level of over 1,000 suggests that heart failure could be present. The 2017 ACC, AHA, and Heart Failure Society of America give a level 1A recommendation stating that natriuretic peptides can be helpful in the diagnosis or exclusion of heart failure. However, when you look at the literature, it's really controversial. There are a lot of issues with BNP, especially when it's used in the ED setting. Looking at observational data, both BNP and NT-proBNP have good sensitivities well over 90% for diagnosis of heart failure when it's compared to individual components of the history and exam but moderate to poor specificities ranging between 40 and 70%. A systematic review and meta-analysis suggested a pooled sensitivity of 95% and a pooled specificity of about 63% with a cutoff of 100 nanograms per liter for BNP. An NT-proBNP cutoff of 300 had a pooled sensitivity and specificity of around 99 and 43%. Another meta-analysis found sensitivity and specificity of 93% and 53% for BNP, and over 90% and 38% for NT-proBNP. This meta-analysis suggests BNP levels are better than isolated history and exam findings, 
but the included studies demonstrated several weaknesses. They all had poor gold standard, which was typically a cardiologist's opinion of the diagnosis, and few looked at emergency physician judgment. In summary, for this observational data, they suggest BNP and NT pro-BNP have high sensitivities for acute heart failure, but moderate to poor specificity. When the emergency physician is less certain of the diagnosis, natriuretic peptides demonstrate less accuracy, and it's not clear that BNP can outperform clinical judgment. There are a number of RCTs looking at BNP use in the ED. Two studies demonstrate a decrease in hospital length of stay and total healthcare costs, but four others showed no difference. Two studies looked at ED length of stay, one demonstrated a statistical but clinically insignificant difference, and the other showed no difference in ED length of stay. None of the studies demonstrate a change in ED treatment, mortality, or even hospital readmissions. There are a large number of problems with these studies, including a lack of clear gold standard for CHF diagnosis, a lack of blinding, and incorporation in spectrum bias. There are several other issues with BNP because many other conditions can affect the BNP levels. Conditions that can elevate BNP other than CHF include acute renal failure, hypertension, pulmonary disease like COPD, cardiac causes like MIs, atrial fibrillation, older age, female sex, liver cirrhosis, hyperthyroidism, and even sepsis. There are also conditions that can lower expected BNP levels. These include obesity, flash pulmonary edema, and even pericardial constriction. In isolation, BNP outperforms individual clinical features in the diagnosis of heart failure but it doesn't appear to significantly outperform a physician's overall clinical impression. When you think about the bias in the positive studies and the number of different comparisons that are being made, the summary is pretty negative for BNP. At best, BNP might impact hospital length of stay, and thus it's probably more appropriate for our inpatient colleagues. Again, keep in mind that this should only be used in conjunction with your clinical evaluation and not used in isolation. There are other labs that can help you, things like renal function, liver function, troponin, and electrolytes. Elevations in renal function, liver function, and troponin are associated with poor outcomes, as well as hyponatremia. All right, let's move on to our next misconception, and that's the utility of the chest radiograph. This is the go-to imaging test for many conditions that we evaluate for in the ED. We place a high value in what we see on the chest radiograph. If there's a big heart and pulmonary edema, it's pretty clear what's happening, but it's not always this straightforward. Now, don't get me wrong. Chest x-rays do have a role in these patients. They can suggest an alternative diagnosis like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, pneumonia, or pneumothorax. Plus, certain findings are very specific. Curly B lines, interstitial edema, cephalization, alveolar edema, and pulmonary edema all have specificities that are over 90%. However, while this test is specific, it's not as sensitive. Close to 20% of chest x-rays demonstrate no findings of acute heart failure. And those findings that I talked about all have sensitivities that range between 9 and 60%. So you can't use a native chest x-ray to rule out heart failure. There is a test that is rapidly available and can really give us a diagnosis fast, and that's ultrasound. When you're using ultrasound, you're looking at several components, the lungs, the heart, and the inferior vena cava. There are several protocols that are available, and EMDocs has several awesome posts on these. Lung ultrasound alone with the presence of three or more B-lines with two or more bilateral thoracic lung zones has a positive likelihood ratio of 7.4 with a sensitivity over 90%. The specificity is over 93%. 
the absence of beelines possesses a negative likelihood ratio of 0.16. Measurement of intervascular volume is typically completed through measurement of the IVC diameter and the percentage change in diameter while the patient's breathing. However, specific numbers vary for IVC collapsibility index, including 20 to 50%. An IVC collapsibility of over 33% is associated with a sensitivity approaching 80% for volume overload with a specificity that's also around 80%. However, there are several issues with assessing the IVC. Tricuspid regurgitation, pulmonary hypertension, PE, and right ventricular myocardial infarction all affect IVC assessment. Basically, you're going to look for a plump IVC with little respiratory variation. Finally, assessment of cardiac function can really help us here. You're going to be looking at the inward movement of the intraventricular septum and the inferior wall of the LV and systole, and the degree of excursion of the anterior mitral valve leaflet and diastole. A reduction in LV function on POCUS by emergency clinicians has a sensitivity for acute heart failure diagnosis of around 80% and a specificity that ranges between 74 and 90%. A quantitative measure includes the E-point septal separation, or EPSS. This is the distance between the mitral valve and the ventricular septum during systole. An EPSS measurement of over 7 millimeters suggests an ejection fraction of less than 50%. Overall, lung ultrasound for the presence of three or more beelines in two or more thoracic lung zones is reliable and sensitive for pulmonary edema. Also throw in cardiac function and look at the IVC. This ends part one on our misconceptions in evaluating for heart failure. Remember, Natriatic peptides should only be used in conjunction with your clinical evaluation rather than using the test in isolation. There are findings on chest radiograph that are specific, but about 20% of chest x-rays are completely negative for findings of acute heart failure. Finally, ultrasound is a rapid and reliable tool for diagnosing heart failure. Thanks for joining us on part one where we looked at misconceptions in heart failure evaluation. Stay tuned for our next parts where we talk about treatment and finally disposition.